Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 22. And I want to say a public apology to Wells Palmer, even though she was amening through the vows. I, I think I used the masculine pronoun throughout. I'm accustomed to baptizing numerous children at one time and uh, used that uh, masculine one, and uh, she was very gracious. It, uh, it reminds me of the old story of the preacher who was trying to, to be more sensitive to the females in his, in his congregation, not only use masculine reference all the time as generic. And so he's doing a, a children's uh, sermon and, and uh, he brought the little boys and girls up and he said, uh, hello, little boys and girls. And uh, I, have a, I have a message for you from God's word. So little boys and girls, please pay attention. Now, you know, when I was a little boy or a little girl, I didn't always, didn't always work, but Wells Palmer was very gracious. Would you, as I asked you earlier, please turn to Revelation 22, and if you haven't been with us for a while or you're new with us, we have been studying through this book for quite some time. We're in the final chapter of this last book of the Bible. And we're going to slow down a bit uh, and take this last chapter very intentionally. So we'll only be here a few more years in chapter 22. Not really that long. We'll finish in Easter. But the reason I'm slowing down is because John slows down. When John started his letter with the prologue, the early words, and then his initial addresses to the seven churches... Those, those, all of those exhortations to those seven churches can be distilled into just five. Five exhortations. I won't go through all of them. We will go through all of them by the end of this chapter. The first one is the one we'll look at today, to repent of falsehood, but he tells others to, to do good works of mercy and others to live holy lives. There are five exhortations in that prologue. And now he returns in chapter 22 to each of those five exhortations to make sure they don't forget them. And he's saying in view of God's faithfulness that God is going to ensure that Jesus wins, he's going to win in your life, trust him for that, then you can obey him out of trust. Obey him in response to his grace. He says that effectively five times with reference to five different areas that these churches, representing all churches, particularly struggle with. Particularly struggle with the, with the, the battle of whether I'm going to be obedient or whether I'm going to blend in because of cultural pressure. And so he tells us in this final chapter, don't quit. Don't give up. Stay faithful to Jesus Christ who is faithful to you. With that in mind, let's look for his encouragement for us today in verses 6 through 12 of Revelation 22. <clears throat> and he, that is Jesus, said to me, these words are trustworthy and true and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do his evil, the filthy still be filthy, but the righteous, let them do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This week I was reading about some of the history of Angola prison. It's in Louisiana, maximum security prison. They have a death row. It has been the site of great human atrocity for centuries. A slave-holding plantation and then effectively a slave-holding plantation even into and beyond the Jim Crow era. Now it is open to tourism and, uh, or to a tour. You can get a tour even not just of uh, the prison grounds but even of death row. Those who visit it say it is overwhelming. I was reading an eyewitness who had just finished a tour of that place, saying that it is perhaps one of the the highest concentrations of human atrocity on the planet, given a relatively small piece of property, even though it's thousands of acres, but relative to the rest of the world, high concentration of human atrocity, a very dark place. It reminded me that years ago I read about another man who toured that uh, facility and even death row. His name is Cornelius Plantiga, a Christian philosopher. And Plantiga said as he was touring death row and you're able to interact with the prisoners as you go about that tour, he saw one man, Plantiga is from the academy, and so he thought that this man looked just like a college professor. He, he, was, he was sitting at his desk, he had wire-rimmed glasses, and he was poring over a big book on his desk, very intently studying. But as he walked by, he caught eyes with the man who was studying, and he said, uh, you know, what are, what are you reading so intently? And he said, uh, with a smile on his face, I'm reading the Word of God. And he held up his big NIV Bible and he said, I'm so grateful that this is a big book because I'll never get to the end of it. It's full of such rich treasures and I never get tired of studying it. Just to think, he said, just think. There are two billion of us Christians throughout the world and this is our book. It's been given to us. There is there is nothing good that has happened in this world except that it has ultimately been inspired by our book, and I have a copy of it in my cell here in Angola. 
Flanagan surely got a little lightheaded when he heard that kind of testimony. And he asked, what kind of book would produce that kind of hope in the midst of such a hopeless place? What kind of book is this? It is indeed the Word of God. Jesus' words to us, the Holy Bible that can pierce the deepest darkness, can bring light into the darkest of night, and bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. And that's exactly the way John is wielding the Word of God with these Christians who are being persecuted for their faith who don't have the benefit of, of history as you and I do, don't have the benefit of seeing redemptive history over some time, and they're wondering, are they going to be exterminated? Is there any hope for the future? They have not been taught yet over and over. Jesus wins. This is, these are the people to whom Paul, uh, John is writing and quoting from Jesus. This is Jesus' word to you, and it means you must not give up, but obey to the end. Obey. Now, you're accustomed to hearing obedience in church, but we're not always so accustomed to hearing the grace orientation of obedience as it comes to us in Scripture. That the reason for obeying God's Word is because it is a reaction of thankfulness to God's love. That the reason we have this book is because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And that life begins right now. And, and God wants life to go well with us, and the way we know it is by looking at and treasuring and valuing and trusting His Word, even when it is counterintuitive to where we are, even when it makes us uncomfortable. John tells us in these several verses basically two reasons, two additional reasons for why we must obey Him. There's sub subsets of this big idea of because Jesus loves us, because God is gracious to us, we must obey. He says, here is specifically how He loves us. Here is specifically how you should be motivated. One is just think what a pleasure, what a treasure it is that you have the truth of God. And then just think about this, he says later, and this is totally counterintuitive. What a blessed thing it's going to be to stand in the judgment day and to hear him bless you. Those two things are in this passage, beginning in verses six, six to nine. Obey God's word. Obey the Bible, its principles, its instructions, its commands. Believe its promises. Because you and I are blessed to have the truth. Even that prisoner recognized that as dire as his situation was on this earth, he was blessed to be among the two billion people in this world who have God's Word in their language. There are one billion people who do not yet have God's Word in their language, 
who have not yet heard the name of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for our world missions emphasis here where we focus sending missionaries to those places that are underserved, that have not heard the Word of God, have not heard the good news of the gospel. This prisoner in Gola said, think of it, among the two billion people, I'm one of those two billion who has the Bible in my hand. I'm blessed to know the truth. But is it really the truth? Can it be trusted? Everybody says that they have the truth. And now everyone is saying that you determine the truth for yourself, which means that there is no such thing as truth according to them. But the Bible says there is one truth. It's incarnated in Jesus Christ, and it is expressed in the Bible that we have in front of us. And so the way he begins this text in verse 6, these words are trustworthy and true. A bit redundant, but he's saying it's truly true. It's a truth that you can trust. But how, we ask? How do we know? How do we know it's not just our cultural upbringing? How do we know that it's really our truth? Is there empirical justification for saying that this Bible is the truth, and there is. John alludes to it when he says in verse 8, when I heard and saw him, or them, the, the, uh, these things, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. When I heard and saw, that's not language to be passed over lightly because it is the way God has confirmed the truthfulness of His Word throughout the ages. We studied this in the book of Exodus, for instance. Moses brought the people of Israel out and uh, they're wondering, can we trust it? Is God really speaking through you to us? And God says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go up on the mountain and I'm going to start writing the Bible through you. Moses, of course, wrote the first five books of the Bible, and Moses tells the, the people of Israel, I want you, to know what, you need to stand back, stand back away from this mountain from Mount Sinai. I'm going to go up there. God's going to give me His Word. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to bring it down to you. And here's how you're going to know that what I have received is the Word of God, that I am His prophet. What I'm about to tell you is going to happen. The ground is going to shake. There's going to be smoke. There's going to be the sound of trumpets, the sound of thunder, flashes of lightning. Most all of your senses are going to receive confirmation that I have heard the Word of God, written it down, and come to deliver it to you. All of that happened just as he predicted. And when it did, those tablets upon which he wrote eventually made their way into the Ark of the Covenant, this box that they carried around with them until they built the temple. It was the Old Testament bindery. And they put those books in there. So as to say, God wrote these books. They came through a true prophet. It's been empirically confirmed. And thereafter, that was the, that was the gold standard. That was the standard for what we call canonization of, of, the, of the, the way the books made it into the Bible. A prophet would come out and he'd say, thus saith the Lord, the Lord has given me this word to you. And God said, here's how you'll judge whether that really is the true Word of God. You, you, you listen, and you check it with the, the, the five books of Moses. And if, if it's consistent with that, it may have some new insights, but if it's consistent, it doesn't contradict, that's a, that's a big test. But there's an additional test. 
before that scroll can be rolled up as, a, as the Word of God and put into the Ark of the Covenant, it has to be confirmed by short-term prediction. And so that prophet had to say, well, this is going to happen. There could be a, a long-term fulfillment for it too, but there had to be a short-term fulfillment. This is what's going to happen, and they had to be able to see that it happened. And when they saw that it happened just as he predicted, then they could say, okay, that's the prophet of God. If, somebody, if he did predict something else and then it didn't come true, then they had, they had uh, opportunity to stone him. And so every book that made it into the Old Testament bindery had been confirmed as being consistent with the teaching of Moses and was confirmed by short-term prediction. What about the New Testament? No different for the New Testament. The apostles had to say, this is what the Lord says, thus saith the Lord. And it's in keeping with the rest of Scripture that's already been revealed. And here are the miracles that I have, that I have uh, performed, and here is the proof that I have witnessed Jesus Christ. I have heard, I have seen, I have touched, I have handled, I have known that Jesus was raised from the dead. And though you kill me, you'll never get me to recant of that. It had to be confirmed empirically too before that book, or that New Testament writer could be in the canon. I go through all of that so as to, for you to have this confidence that the Bible that you hold in your hand, and we could give other examples of the way it was carefully copied, of the, in, the accuracy of the manuscripts, the, the thousands of manuscripts that we can compare and contrast to one another in order to develop a critical edition that is more accurate than any other book of antiquity. But you may know when you hold this Bible that God has gone to great lengths, not only to inspire His prophets to write the Word, but to provide empirical justification for why you should stake your life on it, that this is true, that it's trustworthy. And John reinforces it by saying, I'm on this island, I'm being persecuted, and I will die as a martyr because I refuse to recant of the belief of the profession that I have seen with my eyes, that I have heard the Lord Jesus speak. I have touched him. He has been raised from the dead, and I have heard these words from heaven. This is the Bible that is given to you. And, and our response should be, who am I, O Lord, to be among this few billion of people in this world to receive the truth of the Word of God? It, it, it mustn't make us proud. It can't make us look down on other people and say, why, just, why, just, why can't they believe the truth? There's no way we would have it if, without God's grace. There's no way we would believe it without the conviction of the Holy Spirit. What's the least we can do? What's the rational thing to do? The only rational thing to do is to obey it. God, if you have so lovingly given me this word, then I want lovingly to respond in gratitude and obedience to it. Now, you notice before we leave this first point, there's one other sub-point he makes here, and that is that we are all servants of this same word, not just the preacher or the professional Bible teachers, but in verse 9, you must not, he said, the angel is rebuking uh, John for falling down and worshiping. No, 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 don't worship me. 
I, you're one of, you're, I'm just a fellow servant with you. You and I are the same kind of servant. We are servants alongside the prophets who spread this word and practice it. And we have this privilege, not only if we, as we live according to the Bible, even though at times it steps on our toes, even though at times it, it corrects our lives, even though it, it, it makes things more cumbersome, it makes us stand out. People laugh at us. It costs us money. It may even cost our job. It costs us maybe not doing what we want to every day of the week. But we must acknowledge, if we've lived the Christian life for any length of time, that as we have obeyed His Word, it always goes better. It always goes better when we obey His Word. It always goes better when we choose to obey His Word, even when it doesn't make sense over our own preferences. It never works out right with our pre- when we choose our preferences over God's Word. And so that's what we commend to other people. We don't commend so much the wagging finger to say, you need to stop that, you need to stop that, don't do that. God says no to this, no to that, no. What? We should be the more conferring to them or, or compelling them to obey the Word of God because it is when you do so that you feel most human, that you are most like yourself when life works best. Not always easiest, but the best. We're servants of that same word. I remember a friend of mine who started a, a mission in the inner city of uh, one of the most, it was the ninth ward of, of New Orleans, a, a, near, a, a practically abandoned, totally abandoned place before Katrina. Started a ministry now led by Danny Werfel. But uh, he went there with, with no contact whatsoever, but just the conviction that the gospel makes life more beautiful, that the gospel provides hope. And if anybody embraces it, even an abandoned kid in the ninth ward, it would make his life beautiful. Well, he, his, uh, his genius was he was a football coach. He volunteered as a football coach, and uh, he started feeding, offering the football team hamburgers. It was a sure magnet. He came over to his house and he said, now there's only, you, you have to pay for the hamburger. Here's how you pay for the hamburger. You have to listen to me teach the Bible. They didn't care. He could have, he could have taught the phone book, but they would have, they wanted that hamburger. And they listened to him teach the Bible. And for years he taught the Bible. They loved him and they loved it. And then they said, uh, they, they said, well, we'd, we'd like to go deeper. And he said, I well, I don't know how to go deeper. So he pulled out his old seminary notes on the Westminster Confession of Faith, of all things. And he started teaching the Westminster Confession of Faith. He got to some, some hard-going texts in the Westminster Confession. At one point, one kid raised his hand and said, Coach, it ain't fair. It ain't fair. And he thought he was objecting to the particular doctrine that was being taught. He said, what do you, what do you say is not fair? He said, it ain't fair that we get to learn that God loves us and has loved us from all of eternity and now gives us these, these things to show us how to live. It ain't fair that we get to hear it and not everybody else. Coach, he said, Coach, we got to tell them. That's the way I met that young man later after he was 
had finished college, after he had married, after he had children, after he was starting microenterprises back in the Ninth Ward, he'd realized just how beautiful living for Christ was. That's it's humbling, isn't it? The word that we take for granted. But it is a gift of the truth to us. And we don't have, we don't deserve it. It's a privilege of bidding others to come to that which is more beautiful and believable than anything that the world offers. Second thing I want you to notice in this text from 10 is verses 10 to 12, that we obey God's word not just because we are blessed to have the truth, we obey the word of God because we will be blessed at the judgment day. We obey the word of God because we will be blessed at the judgment day. There was a man I pastored a number of years ago who came to Christ as a 50-year-old. It's not, uh, not very common. Most people are converted in, at younger ages, and it wasn't a very easy thing. It was the closest I think I've ever come to dying for the gospel when I had to tell him he was going to hell. He, was, he said, uh, he said uh, I, here's the way I'm going to get to heaven. Here's what Jesus is going to let me into heaven because I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy because I, I took care of my wife until she died. I'm a good guy because I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a good guy because not only I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a Presbyterian deacon. I said, none of that will get you into heaven. Well, when the Lord saved him, he saved him thoroughly. And he brought him all the way from self-salvation and trust in himself to total faith in Christ. And in, having been in a church for a long time that said the Bible isn't anything, it's full of errors and so forth, he now had the Bible in his hand and he couldn't get enough of it. He devoured it. It showed him how to live. It showed him how to trust. It showed him hope. It relieved him from his cynicism. And one day, after he'd been walking with Christ for a number, a few years, he came into my office. He said, I have some good news to share with you. I said, great. He said, you remember that, that lawsuit that I've been in, that, that man who stole a lot of money from me in my accounting practice? I said, yes, Tom, we've been praying about that. He said, uh, finally settled the suit, and they found in my favor. They're going to award me. They said he has to pay me back. I said, that is really good news. Praise the Lord. He said, no, that's not the good news. The good news is I'm going to forgive him all of it. I said, no, Tom, wait a minute. Tom, wait a minute. Let's, let's think about this more carefully. That's a lot of money. He said, no. I wanted justice to be done. I wanted the, the, the man to recognize the crime he had committed. But, you know, when I came to Christ and I got his Bible, got the Bible, I, every morning I open the Bible and I say, you teach me whatever I'm supposed to learn and I will do whatever you tell me to do. Whatever you tell me to do in this Bible reading, I will do it with the help of Jesus. And this morning I opened the Bible and it said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, forgive your enemies. It says, forgive my enemy. I've only had one enemy my whole life. It's this man that stole the money from me. So it's clear. I'm supposed to forgive him. And the only way to forgive him is to excuse his debt to me. 
That's the kind of radical Christian living. That's the kind of loving, appreciative response to God's grace that can take a pastor's breath away, where the parishioner humbles the pastor. He said, you know, George, you, you said not only did this Bible teach us what we are to, to, to uh, obey and do, but you've also told us that the day is coming when we stand before Jesus and he will take note of everything we have done for his glory and he'll say, well done. That's the good news. The good news is I do this for Jesus. Jesus enables me to do this. And at the judgment day, Jesus will say, well done, Tom. That makes it all worth it. That's exactly the perspective John closes with in verses 10 to 12. This is the distinction of a Christian, that a Christian obeys the Lord Jesus because he will be blessed or she will be blessed for obeying. Now, you've got to hear that with different ears. Typically, we hear that and say, ah, I can earn my blessing. I can earn my salvation. If I do more good than wrong, then I will be rewarded. That is not what he is saying at all. What he's saying is that you will be acknowledged by Jesus' love of your having loved him. It's an endless circle. Jesus enables us to do good, to obey, and then Jesus will reward us and commend us for doing that which he has enabled us to do in the first place. And it's a great eternal love affair. Jesus says through John, don't seal up the words of this prophecy. If you know your Bibles, you recognize this language from Daniel, where, he's, where Daniel is told, seal up the words of the prophecy. It's, it's not that they're contradictory. It's rather, he's, it's a manner of saying how soon these things will come. In Daniel, he's saying it's going to be a while because the Messiah has to come first. Now the Messiah has come. The next thing on God's calendar is the return of Jesus. So he says, unseal this this prophecy, make it very clear that Jesus is coming soon. And this is the good news. Because Jesus lives in you, he is making you righteous. Because Jesus lives in you, he is making you holy. So live according to who you are. You're not going to become righteous spontaneously or holy spontaneously. This is who you are. Conversely, he says to those who are refusing to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, they're going to continue to do what they are. They're going to continue to be filthy. They'll continue to do evil. Now, if you're without Christ today, let me ask you, do you really want to keep doing evil? It pains your conscience. You know it's not right. Do you want to continue to be filthy and have this complex life that is brought about by constantly choosing your preferences? You don't want to live that way. So Jesus holds out to this invitation. Come to me and I will make you able to do righteousness. I will make you able to be holy. And when I am living inside of you, when I'm stirring up your heart to love and good deeds. I'm still battling your flesh. You're going to 
You're not always going to be consistent. But while I'm stirring, up to, stirring you up to love and good deeds, you're actually going to look forward to me returning because I'm no longer your enemy. When I come back, I'm going to see myself in you. And I will say, well done, good and faithful servant. David Brooks called this a rebinding. As he was coming into the faith and he started looking at the Bible differently, he said, you know, the Bible, I'm understanding that the Bible and God's laws, that this, is, this is not something that's narrow-minded, that's something restrictive. This is a gracious rebinding of us to the God who made us. It is, it is a, it is a, a sweet obedience. There is a sweetness to the conformity, our conformity to the Word of God. Is that the way you look at it? It's the way it's intended to be read. I read uh, a number of years ago a tele- about a telegram that came out of, of the crisis at Dunkirk in the Second World War. 1940, before uh, Americans were involved in World War II, the, the British and other allies were trying to help France resist Nazi occupation. And though the British sent 300,000 troops or so, uh, the, the, the Nazis cut through the country like a hot knife through butter and drove a minute, most of those troops up into the north uh, to a little sliver of land known as Dunkirk. And it was absolutely hopeless. It, it seemed absolutely hopeless. It seems like they were going to be annihilated. They were put in a corner. It was going to be like shooting fish in a barrel. The, the British didn't have carriers that were big enough to, or, 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 or fast enough to get over there and get them. And so they were, it seemed, hopeless. There was the amazing story of, if you've seen the movie of the flotilla of little fishing boats and vessels that, that were sent across the English Channel and picked them up almost one by one. But nobody could have envisioned that at the time. And so a British officer a telegram, sent a telegram back, and he said uh, he only had three words, three words in his telegram, but if not, but if not. The Brits knew their Bibles well enough that they recognized it as an allusion to Daniel when Daniel's friends who were commanded to bow down to the idol. And uh, the, the king effectively said, you don't have to believe in it. You can continue to believe in your own God, but just go along with the crowd. Just blend in with everybody else. Just, just, just take the, the focus off yourselves and uh, don't draw attention to yourself. Just, just, just bow. Everything will be fine. But if you don't do it, they're going to throw you in the fiery furnace. Daniel's friend said, our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. Even if you throw us in there, he's able to, to, to save us from the fire. But if not, if he doesn't save us from the fire, we still will obey God's word 
not to worship any idol. What was this British officer saying? We're standing against this evil of fascism led by the Nazis from Hitler. We're standing against it. We're fighting against it. And maybe they'll figure out some way to come and save us from this fix. But if not, we will not surrender. We will not give in. We will oppose this evil till we die. Effectively, because God says to. What faith, we say. What courage, we say. Yes. But it is faith and courage that is provoked and enabled and empowered by knowledge of a very gracious and loving God who gives us his Bible to guide us through this life into the next. Let's obey it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for that one, perhaps here or in the sound of my voice, who has not yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And though he or she thinks that they're living a free life and being true to themselves, in their heart of hearts, they know, in their conscience that you've given them, they know that this is not the right way. I pray that this day they would be not just stopped in their tracks, but they would be wooed to the sweetness of the Word of God, as it's called, sweet as honey. They would be wooed to it and realize that this is a prescription not for a restricted life, but the only one that is truly and eternally fulfilling. And I pray, Lord, for the rest of us who can be guilty of, of taking these things for granted. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would come to a fresh sense of appreciation and that we would see in ourselves the presence of the Holy Spirit that longs for the day when Jesus returns. And we hear the well done and he sees us doing that which he's commissioned us to do. We need your help in the meantime. Help us to return to you over and over again that we might have the ability to do that which you command. In Jesus' name we pray it and God's people said, amen.